Good evening. It is good to see each of you. The best place to be on a Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. How wonderful it is to have the opportunity uh, to worship God together. And what a blessing it is. If you would be turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter, uh, we're going to be looking at primarily passages out of 1 Peter. We will uh, spend a little bit of time in Luke, the 16th chapter tonight. We won't have slides for the, the lesson aspect, and so I would encourage you to be turning there, and we'll continue our series on holiness in just a few moments. I want to invite you to be praying for Tim Martin, myself, and Tracy. We will be flying out in the morning to Honduras for a preacher's uh, lectureship preachers in Honduras and El Salvador that we work with regularly uh, and their families will be coming to this lectureship and uh, we'll be speaking all throughout the day uh, to them and, and Tracy to their wives and we are thankful for that opportunity. There's a lot of good faithful Christian soldiers uh, in those countries and uh, we love them dearly and we look forward to that time to be with them and let iron sharpen iron as we study God's word. And so I want to, I, I really want you to be praying about that, that we can simply do God's will in that and that it'll be a blessing in the kingdom that we will have been together. Also, uh, this weekend, the elders and ministers spent a lot of time together in what we call a retreat. Uh, last few years, we really haven't gone anywhere, but, but we meet for a lot of hours and, uh, and get a lot of good things uh, planned and envisioned uh, for the future. Some things we talked about were for next year. Some things we talked about were for 2017. Uh, but uh, it was a blessing to be together, and you know this, but we are blessed tremendously. Uh, with uh, the eldership that we have and the three additional elders have just been such a blessing uh, already. It, it just kind of amazes me how, how quickly uh, everybody has meshed together and, and everybody's pulling in the same direction. And I came out of uh, the, the meeting, on, we met Friday night and Saturday, and I came out of the meeting on Saturday afternoon uh, just, just very much aware and thankful like with a, a, a lump in my throat of the blessing that we have to have such unity built upon uh, the will of God and the word of God. And uh, we're thankful for that. Also, we have uh, a couple of things that as we think in, in Thanksgiving that we, uh, we want to mention tonight. I think of Michael and Karina uh, Kef just a year ago. We were talking about on this Sunday a year ago uh, that, that September 17th would be their gotcha day. And, uh, and, and here we are. It's hard to believe that a year already has gone by, but we just wanted to pause for just a moment tonight to tell Michael and Karina that, that, uh, that we love you and we're thankful for you and what a blessing that you have been uh, in the life of our congregation and we love all the Kefs and we appreciate so much that good family and uh, what a blessing uh, that is. And then also we have John White who uh, has flown over by himself uh, to adopt Leah, and um, if probably many of you are aware of this, uh, I will give you a brief report, and then you could go online and, and read a lot more of, of this amazing story. Andrea and John were not planning to adopt again, but yet when they heard the story of Leah, they, uh, she was a very, very sick baby, and the fear was that if someone does not adopt her very quickly, she's going to die. And, and so... Uh, they contact. They made contact, and the adoption was rushed so that she could get back to the states and and get the medical uh, help that she needs. And of course, with the recent adoption of Sam and Chris, um, 
their hands, as you can imagine, are kind of full. And so they made the decision that John would go over alone. And, and any of us guys, we can relate to this to some degree of, of kind of the, the concern of going over. And, you know, and, and their policy in China is once you adopt, you stay there for 13 days with your newly adopted child. And, and so he will be there. Um, he will, the gotcha time is at 10 o'clock Monday morning. And so if we do the math right, that's nine o'clock tonight. And so uh, little uh, Leah will be in his arms in just a few hours. And, uh, and so, you know, there's, there's great concern about what that's for him, of what that's going to be like for the next 13 days and what's it going to be like for her and then just the safety of her traveling all the way back to the States. And, and we rejoice with this family. But I want to encourage you to be praying every day uh, for them and for their return and for their safety. And uh, let's begin tonight with a prayer of thanksgiving and, and request. Our most gracious God, uh, you have blessed us far more uh, than what we could ever ask or imagine. Uh, God, we uh, look across the world and we don't know why you're so good to us. Uh, but we recognize that uh, all good things are from you and we recognize our cup overflows and we recognize that to much is given, much is required. And so God, our prayer is that we could pledge to you that we'll give you our best. And we pray that uh, we could bring honor to you and your kingdom. And we pray that we could do whatever we could do to build and strengthen the kingdom. And God, we are thankful for so many good families in this church that they do their part. They do their part in raising their children toward you. Uh, they do their part any time that there's a good work that needs to be done in your kingdom. They do your part in being good mothers and fathers every day. And we thank you for every one of them. God, we're thankful for the children. We know that children are a gift from you, a heritage of yours. And we thank you from the depths of our heart for the rich blessing that we have of the rich resource here of so many wonderful children. And God, we pray for John. We pray that over the next few hours, that this time would be a time of great blessing and a time of great peace and joy. And God, we, we pray for little Leah and we pray that uh, she could readily and quickly and naturally attach to him and that she could find peace in his arms. And we pray that over the next few days that they would be able to enjoy the days and they'd be able to rest at night. And God, we know that with you, all things are possible. With you, nothing is impossible. So God, we ask you to be involved in every moment of that situation. And we pray that, that the richest and greatest blessings that you would want for that little girl uh, would be coming into fruition. God, we are thankful for the fact that you have adopted us. And God, our prayer is uh, that uh, we'll be uh, good children, that we'd be children that would love you and children that would honor you and children that would remain faithful to you and that when we leave this earth, uh, that we'd be children that would live with you forever. And God, if there's anything or anybody that would stand between us and you, our prayer is that it would be removed. And we pray that we would see you as our heavenly father and that in our heart and our commitment, God, our prayer is uh, that we would never value anything more. God, as we are uh, about to study your word, 
we pray a blessing upon this study. We pray that you help our ignorance and fill it with knowledge. We pray that we would replace lust with holiness. And we pray, God, that we would be children that would recognize and appreciate the price that was paid for us. And it's through your son's name we pray. And amen. I don't want to lose you. So I'm going to say the first two sentences I've said for about three weeks, three Sundays, three lessons in a row. But we're getting to a third statement. So don't tune out on me, okay? Holiness is one of the highest, if not the highest attribute that is accredited in Scripture to God. And when it is said three times over, holy, 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 even brings a greater reminder and emphasis to us, that attribute is really important if we're going to understand and appreciate God. And so with that, when we read in 1 Peter, the fact that now he is holy and he expects us to be holy, then that raises, if you will, the bar of expectation for us. It's kind of like we stand in awe of his holiness and then we are humbled to realize that he is willing to cleanse us through his, the atonement, through his son, that we too could be holy like him. And it's really, surely it's more than we can even fathom on this earth. But yet we must not be satisfied with, I can't fully fathom it, and we must grasp for it and we must hunger for an understanding and appreciation for that every day of our life. And that's what we tried to emphasize a lot this morning. But yet I want you to think about tonight that as much as we grow in our faith to love the holy God and seek to become like him, there will always be a world that will say, that is the strangest, craziest thing. And tonight my plea to you is very simple. Will you never listen to the world when it comes to where our appreciation must lie. The world is never going to look at you and compliment you on the fact that you are holy like God. The world is never going to look at you and say, oh, I don't want you to do these ungodly things because I want you to be holy. The world's not going to do that. And so as beautiful as this life over here of understanding the holiness of God and being holy like he is holy, Peter also at the same time reminds us, if you're looking to the world, they're not going to give you support in that. And sometime when we're not aware of that or we don't have an understanding of that, it can become very discouraging when we're mocked and when we're spoken evil of and when we're criticized, when sometime we get the false notion, well, if I'm a good person seeking to do the right thing, everybody around would appreciate that. And Peter writes an important paragraph in his writing about the wonderful passages of holiness. He writes and he says, they're not going to do that. And it shouldn't shake us. And so tonight is a reminder we should expect it. I'd like for you to look with me in 1 Peter. We're in the first chapter. And you remember this morning we looked at verse 13, that we were to gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest in your hope, fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now remember this morning, we didn't spend much time on verse 14, but notice how he describes if, if our mind is gonna be ready and we're gonna rest our hope upon the grace that's coming when Jesus comes back again, he's gonna bring that full measure of grace to us and, and we will be revealed uh, what Jesus, it will be revealed to us who, and what Jesus will look like and we'll be like him according to 1 John 3 and verse two and three. But notice the rest of this as we go in verse 14. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. And then that is the, trans, the transition to say, now be holy as God is holy. In other words, rest your hope. But now note this, now that you are obedient children over here, you're holy like he is holy. Now that you're that, you are not going to be driven by your lust. Lust simply means sinful desire. You're not going to be driven by your sinful desire as in your ignorance. Now, the world is going to decide what to do tonight based on what they feel like doing. They operate based on desire. And so it may be immediate gratification. It may be that, hey, this is what my fleshly nature wants right now. It may be this is what the peers around me have pressured me to do. But the world has this lustful desire. And by that it is, that my desire is, I want my friends to like me. And, and so there's all kind of ways and angles that Satan works this, but it ultimately comes down that the world is not going to say, God, you're holy, and I want to be holy like you. God, I want to be a reflection of you. I want your will to be done in my life. The world's not going to do that. The world is going to say, fleshly desire rules. But notice that next part. Fleshly desire as well as ignorance. Think about how many people in the world truly do not know about a holy God. They may know a God exists, but they truly do not know the holy God. And they definitely don't know the holy God expects us to be holy. And so they are going to operate day after day in ignorance. That's our responsibility in the Great Commission to do everything we can do to help them be enlightened, enlightened with the will of God. But notice he also said, as in your ignorance. There's some people out in the world they're not ignorant. They know what the will of God is, but they are living by their lust, their fleshly desires, as in their ignorance. Now, the outcome for those two, two people is no different, right? Are you listening, church? If somebody never has met the Lord and they're living by sinful desire, and you have met the Lord and you've decided to still live as if you were ignorant, the outcome's gonna be the same for both of us, right? And so I think that's why maybe Peter writing this, he says, as in your ignorance, because that'll cover everybody. Those that are truly ignorant are those that are just living as if they were ignorant. This got me thinking about, and, and not to rehash this morning's, but you remember all three points we looked at this morning, the only way we can do them is to lift our eyes from this earth like when we talked about hope this morning, the only way we can really live in the hope that we ought to have in verse 13 is we put our hope in the grace that Jesus is going to bring to us on the day that he is revealed. Our hope's not found on this earth. Our hope is found in looking. And the holiness, we don't find holiness by looking left and right. We find holiness by looking to the God who is holy and we become holy from him and like him. And then even the fear that we talked about. Remember, there's, there's this conduct of fear but that conduct of fear is based on not living for this earth. We lift our eyes and we say, you know what? I'm only on this earth for a short stay. I'm living for eternity. And so as I got to thinking about 
here in verse 14, as all of the emphasis to the perspective of seeing all of this is to keep our eyes lifted on eternity and upon God and upon Jesus' second coming, it got me thinking about a guy that was ignorant and the ignorance affected him for eternity. And Jesus told, he chose to tell us about it. And so I'd like for us to turn to Luke the 16th chapter tonight. And I'd like for us to, to see an example in scripture where a man was ignorant and, and his ignorance really, really cost him. And um, I hesitate to read it all, but maybe that would be good. You wouldn't tune out at the reading of the Holy Word of God, would you? All right, Luke the 16th chapter. Let's, let's read this story in verse 19 and following. Luke the 16th chapter and verse 19. As we read this, I want you to just be thinking about was, was this rich man ignorant of things that were going to happen to him? In other words, if you could have gone up to him before he died and you could have said, hey, tell me something you're living for. Would he have talked about things on the other side? Or would he have talked about his sumptuous day-to-day -day life? And, and if you would have said, tell me who you're living for. Would he have talked about, I'm living for the, the end, for the coming of, of Christ? Or would he have talked about, I'm living for my nice house to live in, for the work I have? What would he have said? Just be thinking about that as we read this. We're in, in Luke, the uh, 16th chapter and verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at the gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died. Now notice the beauty when, when he died. He was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. So, so he has this heavenly host surrounding him immediately and they take him to a great place of comfort. Now notice the re this next sentence in the end of 22. The rich man also died and was buried and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, Therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, for if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one be raised from the dead." This man was ignorant. This man was ignorant, I believe, of things that were coming before he died. I would suggest to you that he probably didn't give a lot of thought to this. When he opened his eyes being in torment after taking his last breath on earth, there is nothing in this passage that communicates that he opened his eyes in torment and said, yep, this is what I planned on exactly like I thought it would be. 
I would suggest to you he was probably surprised where he ended up. Now flip that same coin over. Have you ever thought about the fact there's not going to be anybody in heaven surprised? Those people that are going to be in heaven, they have lived for, just like we studied this morning, they've been living for the second coming of Jesus. They have been planning for it. I think about several years ago, there was a guy that I saw the front of his Bible. In the front of the Bible, he had written on that blank page in the front, heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. You know, there's going to be a lot of unprepared people in hell, and a lot of their unpreparedness is ignorance. Probably be the idea when they open their eyes in torment, I had no idea this was coming. But not only was it that they were ignorant about the destination, and by the way, you know how we sometimes, I'm not saying you, but some in America love to throw around the old phrase, ignorance is bliss? Ask this guy if it was bliss. The second thing that I suggest to you that he was ignorant on was probably the degree of punishment. There's nothing in here that, that where he said, that's what I expected. I expected to be a lot of torment. I expected to just be dying for just one drop of water. Yes, th this is exactly, I would suggest to you, he was probably ignorant of that. And then he looked over the, he looked over the, the gulf and what he see? He saw a lot of comfort on the other side. He probably was ignorant of that comfort that was over on the other side. Ignorance wasn't bliss for him. A third thing that I suggest to you is that he was ignorant of the permanency of the situation. You remember, he, he said, hey, let, let him come over. Now remember, the way he knew him on earth was that he was a beggar that had so many sores all over his body and dogs came and licked the sores. Now here's this man that is a wealthy man and now in Hades in flames, he's saying, can you just send that guy that was the beggar? Let him come over and just let him put his finger in some water and let one drop of water touch my tongue. Can you imagine? But you're, you know, we read. He was told that gulf is fixed. That was probably knowledge to him that he didn't know before. He was probably ignorant before that of the fact that it was going to be a place of permanency. And, and even the fact of later when he says, send, send him back to my brothers, that place was fixed. It's not going to be a, a coming in and a going out. It's permanent. When we die condemned, we're condemned for eternity. When we die saved, we're saved for an eternity. And to, to realize that this is permanent is knowledge that we ought to put to use. And how sad would it be to get to the other side and say, in ignorance, wow, so this is really what it's like? And then let's mention quickly the brothers. He mentions that his brothers don't know that if they stay on the track they're on, they're going to end up in the same place he is in. Let that settle in for a minute. I remember years ago, I heard a preacher say that one of the most evangelistic, passionate moments in Scripture where someone wanted others to be saved came from torment. Isn't that amazing to think about? This man that spent all of his days... And the only way the Bible describes it to us is they spent it in a lot of wealth. And yet, when he died, he became very evangelistic minded. 
how awesome would it be? Please take this to heart for yourself. How awesome would it be if he would have had that same passion for his five brothers to be saved while he was still on the earth instead of after he passed away? We got Friends Day coming up. I don't know, I don't know of a better way to just have a soft introduction to have a, a very easy and warm introduction to bring somebody in to say, we'd love to have you that day. Now let's just go to reality. Reality is one of these days we're going to see our friends stand on the day of judgment. On the day you see one of your friends being condemned, will you be thinking then to yourself, I sure do wish there's something I could do. Well, listen, if there's something you really want to do, it's got to be done on this side of eternity, not on the other side of eternity. And this man reminds us of this, that he had an ignorance, an ignorance that led him into destruction. And then in destruction, it's kind of like a bell alarm is going off that says, I've got to do something about my five brothers. They're on this same course. They're going to come to this same destination. Why? Because they're ignorant just like I was ignorant. We've got to get somebody to go back. And that brings us to the final point of ignorance we'll point out in this particular passage. He was ignorant about what would save. He really believed that if one resurrected from the dead, that just the fact that his brothers would see a miracle would cause them to be saved. Oh, they're going to listen to him. If somebody resurrects, they'll listen to him. Ask Jesus if that worked. Ask Jesus if it worked. Jesus resurrected another man named Lazarus. And not everybody that saw that became a follower of Jesus. Jesus himself resurrected and showed himself to many and not everybody became followers of Jesus. Why? Miracles, although they can be impressive and sometimes draw attention to get people to study back in the first century times, what they never did in and of themselves, they never saved people. It's God's plan of redemption that saves and if right now, God came back right now and decided to do one of the most mind-blowing miracles you and I have ever seen, there still wouldn't be a person here tonight saved or condemned because of it. Miracles do not save people. What saves? Christ. His gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. Learning of that and responding to it. That's what saves. There was a lot of ignorance that we read about in this passage. And lest you maybe didn't trail with me, why are we looking at that? Because when we go back to our text in 1 Peter, the first chapter, you remember the thing that set apart those who were holy after the holiness of God, the thing that sets them apart is they're not driven by their own lust in ignorance. They're driven by the holiness of God, not lust. They're driven by the knowledge of the holiness of God, not ignorance. And what's the difference tonight if I live as if I were ignorant and somebody else that is ignorant? And there is no difference. And so we look at this and say, I'm thankful for all the ones that have helped me learn about God. Maybe you've had parents that have helped you. Maybe you've had grandparents. You've had Bible class teachers. You've hopefully had friends Maybe you've even had mentors. We could go on and on. Aren't you thankful that they have helped you gain knowledge? But ultimately, 
the great gift of knowledge is being able to have the holy word of God. And that's what the last part of 1 Peter, the first chapter dwells upon, that that is what saves us. If you want to glance down at 22 and 23, notice in 22, since you have been purified through your souls in obeying the truth. And then when he goes down in 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And so now we say, you know, it, if, if people could just see individuals living out that knowledge of God's holiness and that holiness in their life, they would be so impressed by that. Do you remember 1 Peter, the fourth chapter? Look there. In 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, instead of being impressed, let's jump right to it in verse four. What did they say in verse four? Instead of saying, you know what? I admire that you have conviction. I admire that you live a holy life. Now, what do they say in verse four? In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. Now, let's go back and put that in context. You see in verse one, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves also with the same mind for he who suffered in the flesh has, caught, has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. You see that, that contrast there in verse two? He's writing here and he's saying, sure, there was, there was this individual and they lived in the lust of the flesh. Same language back in verse one. That's how they live. But he said, they came to know about the holy God. And they said, I've lived this way long enough. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to start living for God now. I've armed my mind with the mind of Christ and I've changed the way I'm living. Okay, so let's see how this works out now. He says in verse three, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles or the will of the heathens when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, rivalries, drinking parties, and abominable Idolaters, idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange. You do not run with them. Are you okay with that? When your peers find out that you're not lewd, when they find out that you don't operate based on fleshly lusts, when they find out that you don't do drinking parties, when they find out that you're not into the crowding around and they laugh at you and they mock you and they go behind your back and they say evil things, what's your response going to be? Oh, I, I, I've, got to, I've got to some way make them think I'm more like them. I don't, I don't want to be the outcast at work. I don't want to be the one of our peer group that, that, that he, he can't relate with everybody. What's your response going to be? This is what the Lord said our response ought to be. Let's skip down now to verse 15. Still in 1 Peter 4. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. 
For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, what will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Or where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Back up in verse 16. I'll start with my heart and you start with your heart. What does produce shame in your life? If someone mocks you, do you feel ashamed? Or would you feel ashamed if someone mocked you and you turned your back on God? It's going to be one or the other. Which one are you ashamed of? You see, what he's saying is, listen, when others mock you, there's no shame in that. You know that you have glorified God and you stand right there with him. Suffer the wrongdoing, suffer the evil, stay with God, but don't try to squirm and back up and I've got to apologize and I've got to make them like me. You know what God said? God said, they're not going to like you. They're always going to think you're strange. But God, I, I, I want everybody to like me. Decide where you want to live. You live in the world and you try to build your whole life on, I want everybody to like me. And keep in mind, there's nobody in the world that everybody likes. That's Satan's big lie. Or you can say, you know what? I want to be holy as God is holy and let the chips fall where they may. I want to glorify him in everything. And when others mock me and they speak evil of me, I will not be ashamed and I will glorify God in that. Are we going to suffer? Yes, according to this, we're going to suffer. So what do we do? Keep in mind, Nero was about to bust loose on Christians, and that's probably why he's writing this right now. And when he says judgment's about to begin on the righteous, he's probably talking about in their day and time that man's judgment was going to come out quickly and harshly against Christians. And so he brings that up and he says, okay, what's going to happen when man's judgment comes out? And he says, you think it's bad to suffer as a Christian? Think about the ones that do not even obey the gospel. What's their suffering going to be like? Think about the, the, the account that we just read in Luke 16. Do you want to suffer for a little time on this earth or do you want to trade places with the rich man lifting up his eyes in Hades just begging for a beggar to bring a drop of water? That's what Peter is getting at here. He's like, which one do you want? And brother, that's what we've got to understand. And so I want to close tonight. If you'll scan with me, go back to the first chapter and... And, and I, I just, I want you to note how the link between the verses that we just can't. Look at verse, look at verse uh, 17, what we read this morning, that we need to have a fear in, in our conduct uh, of God. But then notice in 19, what bought you? Was it something corruptible like silver and gold? Is, is that what bought our salvation? No, look at verse 19. It was the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And it wasn't only the simple fact of Christ's blood. It's not a simple fact, the grand fact of Christ's blood. But notice, it's also a scheme of redemption. Look at 20. 
It was foreordained before the foundation of the world. They manifested in these last times. And then it was because of belief in the, the one who can resurrect from the dead. Look at 21. For though, through him, believing God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And by the way, that's the end of a bookend. They began over in the third verse where the hope was made alive again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But do you see this transition coming out of the things that we've studied today? The idea is, are you saved? And if so, do you realize it wasn't that just somebody came up with a lot of money and said, buy you. It was the precious blood of Jesus. And it was this, it was this plan of atonement from the beginning of time. Before God said, let there be light, he said, I'm going to make a way to save. And I think what Peter is trying to get at here is he's trying to say, do you realize when I'm saying, like earlier, when, when Peter would be saying, when I'm saying put your hope in God, when I'm saying live holy, when I'm saying fear him, do you realize all of the plan that has gone into the very fact that we can do that? Do you realize all of the price that's been paid so that we can do that? And so I close with this illustration that falls short, but it's the best I've got. I want you to imagine a, 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 a beautiful little girl, 20 years old, goes off to college and her, her mom and dad grow a little bit concerned because they start seeing her running with a, a crowd that may not be the best of crowd, but yet at the same time, they don't know and, and, they, and then they get the phone call that she's been kidnapped and their world is crushed. And they get the call that, that they need to collect an amount of ransom money and it's more than they have. And so they begin to think, you know, this seems impossible but this is our daughter. We can come up with this. And so they literally call an investor and they sell their house that day. And they start selling off every possession they own. And they go to their, their IRAs and they liquidate them. They go to all their savings and, and, and they bring out all the retirement. They bring out all their savings. And they're still a little bit short. And so they go to some of their best friends and they say, listen, we don't need a few hundred dollars. We don't know when we can pay you back, but we're just begging you. Can you give thousands of dollars? We're still short. And five of their, 10 of their friends just pitch in tremendously. And they get this huge bag of money and they meet just like they're supposed to and they lay it out in the center and they back up and their heart is, is, is just so uh, ready to just erupt because they can't wait to see their daughter. Is she okay? Or is, is, is she gonna come and, and run into their arms and is everything gonna be okay? And everything they've given up to buy their daughter back is worth it. So they're waiting and they're waiting and their daughter comes out to the bag of money. And she looks in it and she picks it up and she looks solemnly at her parents and she walks back and gives all the thugs a high five and they all embrace each other and she looks back and smirks and walks off with her parents' money. What would that do to you as a parent? How would it crush you that the one you love is still gone? The one you love, you did everything you could do to buy her back. And she's still on the other side. Today, one of the things I want you to think about as we come out of these last two weeks of lessons Holiness is about a relationship. God bought us so that we could become His holy children. We've read it over and over in these passages about being His children. 
He didn't buy us just so he could say, let me tell you a standard of holiness. It's all these rules. And are there guidelines? Absolutely. But it's not, it's not just the guidelines. It's him wanting to redeem us. It's him wanting to take us home for an eternity. And think about the child of God that looks at the redemption of Jesus Christ and looks at a plan that's been in motion before the beginning of time and smirks at God as we walk away with the enemy. In ignorance, that would be easy to do. But tonight, every one of us here knows better. We're not ignorant. We know all that God is and what he's offered to us. And tonight, we're about to sing a song of encouragement. And if there's anything that we can do to help you take steps toward a father who loves you immensely, don't let anything or anybody stand between you and your father that loves you immensely. Let's leave here tonight honestly being able to say, not because of our righteousness, but because of his redemption, let's be able to leave here tonight and say, he is holy and I'm holy. Thank God I'm holy. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ or you're better,